Hello, and welcome to another episode of AgTech So What, brought to you by Tenacious Ventures. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. When it comes to waste in the food system, the waste constituted by the organic matter in the food itself is just one part of the problem. After food is grown, it then has to be picked, packed, and processed before it's shipped, bought, and stored. And the packaging along that chain creates a lot of inorganic waste. And packaging waste is one of the hardest to eliminate because it serves so many important roles, from food safety to marketing. Today, we dig into the issue of packaging waste, starting not within the world of food and ag, but from the perspective of someone in the general waste management space. That someone is Gail Sloan, CEO at the Waste Management and Resource Recovery Association of Australia, which represents thousands of members and companies in the waste and resource recovery supply chain across the country. We asked Gail to give us an overview of the whole waste space in Australia, what's working and what's not, and what the future might look like for companies and for investors who might want to play in this space. Fair warning, this is a dense and fast-moving overlook of what is a very complex space, but I think it's valuable context to take into the second half of today's chat, where we'll hear from a company that's thinking about their waste problem. I opened the conversation by asking Gail where Australia is currently at with its waste reduction targets. We're not on track. That's the reality. National waste data was released December last year, 2022. We have had a national waste policy in place since 2018, 29 adoption. We've got some high level targets around 80% of our resource recovery by 2030. We have a 10% avoidance by 2030, amongst other things like increasing consumption of recycled materials, green public procurement, and none of those targets are getting close. Worryingly, we have had a 3% increase per capita from memory on waste produced even since the report, okay, since the national strategy was set. We've had an increase in landfill from 27 million tonnes to 28 million tonnes. We're around about 60% recovery rate as of 20. 22. There's a lag in the data, but we're still a very long way off. So the reality is we have to reduce consumption or creation of waste by in round figures, 7 million tonnes over the next seven years. That's a million tonnes of less consumption. But we also are about 14 million tonnes of infrastructure short that needs to come on stream over the next seven years. So that's 14 million tonnes per year in 2030 should be operating. So we've got a long way to go and we're not having conversations with the community around what that looks like and what needs to change. So you've seen COP27 recently talking about carbon and big emphasis on consumption and buying correctly and big shift in business models towards sharing and leasing. And we're not having that conversation here. So we've got a lot to do. Talk a little bit maybe about corporate or company responsibility here. Does that go back to sort of initial design of products? Is it about education? What are the kind of levers that you're talking to companies about? No, I think it's all of the above. It starts with a purchasing policy and procurement policy around, are we prefacing Australian recycled material? Are we focusing on those companies that are actually using recycled? Are we setting up internally basic things such as avoidance or reuse systems for staff? We've got to get away from just this take and dispose model. It's quite normal to use cutlery and crockery. You don't have to use disposal in your workplace. Are we looking at putting systems in a workplace that allows for container deposit redemption and encourages it? So waste-free 
communities, societies. If you're making a product, are you making sure that it's generally reusable, recoverable, recyclable? Product design is absolutely key. If it's not able to fit within the systems from a manufacturing point of view, are you considering product stewardship schemes to actually bring your product back into circulation? So it's a paradigm shift. It's always that challenge around if you're in a consumption-based industry, trying to get people to buy more as opposed to we should be focusing on buying better. Are there examples of kind of commercially led initiatives that you're seeing or specifics that you'd point to where businesses have harnessed the potential economic benefit of doing this? Or do you think it's really going to need to be driven from that policy side? No, it's like the export bans exist in Australia for plastic, glass and tires. And a lot of companies have capitalized on that in a sense of it's actually enabled their business model to continue and grow, right? Because it's very hard to compete often with the onshore reprocessing when there was the ability to send offshore and pay for it and not take the risk associated with it. So there are definitely commercial companies that are remanufacturing in Australia. And if you look at our construction and demolition industry, that material is too heavy to send offshore. So we, we do have a number of really good companies who are doing work in that area. And I guess similarly with compost, with food waste, ideally we'd like to avoid the creation of it. But the reality is once you have it and you turn it into a product, you're not going to export that because it's living material. It's real, like biomaterial. There are a lot of companies doing great things in Australia. I think the next piece, it's not so much about where it goes after it. It's having a conversation with the community that says you don't want waste. So what role are you going to in not creating it in the first place or buying that material back from us? So they're the, the real opportunities as I see it. We have looked at whether it's automated harvesting to pick things only when they're ripe all the way through to packaging and shelf life preservation to then things on the consumer kind of perception side or even in-home kind of shelf life preservation or things like that. Definitely a range of innovations there. Are there any examples on the food waste side that you would point to that kind of get you excited either in those CRCs or other kind of specific innovations or products or initiatives that you'd point to as moving in the right direction? Yeah, I, look, I really, from a community and a triple bottom line, I really love the work that Rap UK has done with Love Food Hate Waste initiative they've done for many years because it goes back to the basics and also help tackle things like obesity, cooking, preparing food, buying only what you need. So it starts to put money back in the consumer's pocket. We waste between $30 to $50 on food each week per household. That's a huge amount as we have a real challenge with cost of living. So I really love the basics, to be honest. And we've forgotten how to cook. We've forgotten how to eat leftovers. My daughters die at the concept of leftovers, but they're increasingly accepting that's what mum does. So I think um, you know, getting back to some of those basics, and I think COVID was good for that, right? We had a lot more home-cooked meals. We thought about these things more. And I just loathe Food waste is so avoidable. The other thing I wanted to ask about, maybe taking a little bit of a turn, is around the end of life. So recyclability, what's recyclable, what's not. That seems to be still a pretty challenging question, both for individuals and for businesses. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges at that kind of end of life stage that we currently face in Australia? I think if we had more of a extended producer responsibility mindset or a product stewardship mindset in Australia, which we haven't quite got yet, some of those issues would go because we don't have a system as yet in Australia that 
whilst we have a green claim system of ACCC where you've got a warrant that the product is, in order to make a green claim, you've got to demonstrate how and where it's never actually been enforced. If we move towards extended producer responsibility approach, and we do see that with contained deposit schemes and we've got clear pathways and we have the producers responsible for funding those pathways, then I think a lot of the debate around recyclability would go out because you would actually be very clear and how you aggregate it and where it belongs. We again gone through a long period of what's referred to in my mind as making waste a negative externality. So you just pass it on to someone else to deal with later down the chain. If we came back to, if we're really going to go circular in Australia, we have to make producers responsible for demonstrating where these can be recovered and aggregated. And it's not just enough to go, it'll go in a bin, it'll end up somewhere. It's actually got to go under a green claim. You've got to demonstrate where. And I think a lot of people still think in technically recyclable. So for example, all glass is in theory recyclable over and over. But can it be recycled in Australia when there's a lack of infrastructure, for example, that we're seeing an increase in glass? But can I actually get glass from um, remote northern WA to a glass beneficiation plant that exists in South Australia in a cost-effective manner. We need to rethink the economics and the responsibility of these schemes. And I guess there's nothing more obvious than that in the current conversation that's happening as a result of Red Cycle. I wanted to ask you about that, but before I do, just to dig in one more level on how we might solve that, the exactly that point, the glass is in theoretically recyclable, but in practical reality, it's not because it's produced too far away or the infrastructure doesn't exist. Does that kind of come back to that infrastructure gap? And that's really the leverage point that we need to build more of that infrastructure or are there other business models or other changes that are needed there um, to close that gap? We definitely need greater infrastructure in Australia, but infrastructure will only come with government support, I guess, if we're thinking about a third of the stream is aggregated through councils and all states and local councils charge rates, et cetera, for a service. So we've just got to think about how we do that. We do as an industry having some sort of financial participation where possible from government to make sure that these facilities go forward. But we need strategic infrastructure planning around where facilities go and that people will buy the product back. You really can't build infrastructure based on just an input fee, like a gate fee. You actually need to have a market that keeps covering the output fee and the product to make these commercially viable. Whilst we saw with the Recycling Modernisation Fund that was done by government after the export bans came in, there was no strategic planning around where these facilities would go or could go. And we need to think about how much of that is a community benefit and community need and should have access to these services. So we definitely need strategic infrastructure planning for our services. We need to think about and we need governments to focus on how we can get certainty around precincts in which we can actually build these facilities, which are necessary if we don't want to put material into landfill. And even if we have to continue to put into landfill, we need to build with certainty and know that we can operate these facilities because the extreme is what's the alternative. It's actually refreshing in some ways. I end up in a lot of conversations because of the investing work we do that have so much kind of techno optimism that are like, we'll just install this device and people change their behavior. We'll invent this magical packaging. And that's nice to think about. The reality is these are complex systems with human psychology, economic incentives, et cetera. And while the need for so much policy change is challenging, I think from a how fast can we really move perspective, but it's also, I think, a more realistic view of the kinds of changes we're going to need. 
Yeah. And it's also, it's just not that simple. I wish it was. So you're not actually, if you're dealing with and developing technology or business practices based on waste streams, we're not sausage factories. One day a truck might come in with six tons, one day it might come in with four tons. You will receive waste at a licensed premise that'll have capacity to hold material to a certain volume. If there's no volume going out the back because there's no market for it or no demand, then what? So it's a really complex business. So we are absolutely committed to diverting from landfill because we know that landfill has methane. We know that we need to recover these products. Ideally, they've been reused, repaired, shared, and had their life prolonged for as long as possible. But ultimately, when it gets to our sector, we want to make a product out of it. But to do that, someone's got to buy it. You mentioned Red Cycle. I imagine many of our listeners are not actually familiar. So can you talk a little bit about what happened and then maybe lessons that you might take from it? Well, well, Red Cycle was a great initiative. And we always talk about in order to get best resource recovery possible, you want separation at source. Or So if you don't get it at source, which is what Red Cycle was trying to do with providing a collection system for specifically soft plastics through supermarket chains, if you don't get through source, you obviously have a commercial cost of the transportation and the sorting. And the reality is at any stage in the chain in our sector, there is a cost associated with it to get it back to virgin. And it's arguably more expensive given the labour and the energy as you go. It's just natural, right? So we spend a lot of time in our sector having to deal with people who don't want to pay more than virgin, but the environmental benefit of using recycler, um, and from an energy perspective is far greater than using virgin. So they set up a scheme nationally and the biggest challenge that Red Cycle had was oh, there's way more plastics out there than they ever had capacity to do. So we're about 350,000 tonnes to half a million tonnes, depending on who you speak with, of material. They only were able to secure a limited number of reprocessors. And these reprocessors really struggled from time to time on being able to turn that product into other products. People may have seen the great work that plastic forests have been doing by taking different plastics and turning it into products such as street furniture, bollards, road equipment. Now, if people aren't buying those products back, you can't keep making it. So Recycle in some ways became a victim of its own success. Too much product was going in and not a product coming out. It was done on a fee-for-service model to the supermarkets they were collecting from Plus, there was financials in the system, as I understand, from the brands who use the logo. Now, if there was a product stewardship model that all everyone who brought this material to market had to pay to have it managed and even better had an obligation to buy the material back and use it as a product, we wouldn't be where we are today. But we've got one mandatory product stewardship scheme in Australia, which is oil. We've had a reluctance in the previous in eight, nine, ten years of government to move to any mandatory schemes. But if this doesn't work financially and there's no obligation on those who make it to take it back, then we're going to keep having these challenges. It was interesting. I think the news came out when in the technology world that we live in, there was other examples of actual fraud or kind of CEOs being called out as too much technology hype or venture hype and not enough actual reality. And I think in some circles, the Red Cycle case got lumped into that, whereas my sense of the point you make is it actually was nothing to do with fraud, let alone a bad CEO or bad execution. It was more about the understanding of the whole system and how we haven't solved or attempted to solve the whole problem. Is that a fair characterization? From a systemic point of view, if we keep expecting someone else to solve and don't take responsibility, it's just not going to work. And it's also, these need to be commercial systems that are viable, right? 
And part of that commercial system is not just technology, it's also markets. And we do not have sight of the fact that we need markets for products and people need to preference it. And we also just don't grapple with the fact that this is secondary raw material, right? So if I use something once, doesn't mean I can't use it again and again. So why are we so obsessed with having everything new and shiny? Why don't like a polymer for a plastic can actually be made through a chemistry process back into a polymer for plastic. It can also be done so through a mechanical process. We have companies that are putting 100% recycled PET bottles, water bottles back on the shelf. You cannot tell the difference. And so we should be preferencing that when we go back and buy from the supermarkets that we're taking the recycled packaging because you can't tell the difference, right? We've met the standards, but we just aren't having enough of that conversation here. If we fast forward to hopefully having met these targets and solved some of these big challenges and created more value, any other keys to doing so that we haven't talked about yet today? Everyone's talking about circular economy, okay? So circular economy is not recycling. Circular economy is designing our waste and pollution. So for me, Circular economy is, as a manufacturer, I'm designing what I need when I need it, so I'm going to do risk my costs in that sense. We definitely need more support from government and the community in thinking the system's based for reuse systems. So we've had a period where everyone's gone through this, let's eliminate plastics, and we've had a very binary approach to plastic. Well, plastic is bad, which is not the case. So it has a really important role in safety and other things. With circular economy, we need to actually think differently and behave differently. And we just haven't actually grappled with that in Australia in the sense of what the inputs are, what the outputs are. But people don't realise that Airbnb is a circular economy. Like we've actually gotten and car share are effectively circular economies through their ride share system. But in Europe, we have a conversation around we only use a car one seventh of the time, so we'll share it. We'll prolong the life of it and therefore we will reduce the demand on the planet. All right. So we really need to stop green claiming or greenwashing, recycling as circular. Circular really needs to move through that supply chain, as we were saying earlier, and actually have the generator take responsibility for it and have a home for it. We need to, as a consumer, think differently about what we're consuming and start to put the pressure on people, on companies and ask the questions like, we've got a huge issue coming at us with solar panels. What on earth is going to happen to those at end of life? There is no solution of that. So we need to have better understanding of what we're buying, what we're doing and where these belong. So there's policy shifts, but there's also consumption shifts that I think need to come with some of these things. Gail captured so many stellar insights here that I'm excited to unpack at the end of today's episode. But first, I want to switch gears and introduce you to someone who's tackling waste from the commercial side of the proverbial table. You're about to hear from Tom Rutledge, founder and CEO of HelloFresh Australia and New Zealand. Tom sat down with Komal Patel, my colleague here at Tenacious, to chat about sustainability and waste in the meal kit delivery business. But before we dive in, I'll add that Komal and Tom recorded this interview at this year's Evoke Ag Conference, so it might sound a little different than our usual episodes, but I think you'll enjoy the live recording ambiance. Here's Tom with a bit of background about how he got started. So I started HelloFresh in Australia back in January 2012. That was after a decade in startup, early stage businesses, having grown up on a farm prior to that. And then in between all of that, I went on MasterChef, the TV cooking show. So I wanted to bring together that early stage business, that cooking, but also very much attached to physical product, very keen on provenance just because of the childhood and the background I had. So the meal kit concept was not born at that point, but the opportunity to change the way that people got food delivered to their homes certainly did because grocery retail was largely undisrupted at that point by e-commerce. So I just found it a really interesting space and arrived at a product that in turn became HelloFresh and that was 11 years ago now. 
And in the past 10 to 12 years, have you seen a shift in the demands that consumers have? Started with convenience. How do you see sustainability playing in freshness and all of that? How do you think about the different characteristics that customers are asking for? And has there been an evolution there? Well, we have vegan recipes now, which we never had before. And that's, I think, largely driven by demand, but also like an increasing availability of great vegan ingredients. That's just one small reference. If I look at our share of vegetarian meals that are available and get taken on a weekly basis, that certainly increasing too. So I think that there's that consumer awareness on an individual level in terms of either flexitarianism or reducitarianism and being more conscious about what they eat. There's also an expectation that companies do the right thing in terms of offsetting carbon in their supply chain, being responsible in the products that they source. We very much are aware of that consumer expectation and it's something that as business operators we want to meet that ourselves with and without that consumer expectation. And then on top of that we see that the consumers that we have or the customers that we have are increasingly aware of the benefits of our supply chain. So we have a very lean model in terms of wastage. We have many relationships with directly with growers. So we're able to skip distribution centres. We're able to leapfrog the traditional supply chain networks that have a lot of inherent waste and essentially deliver a customer a carrot when we know what that carrot's for and when they're going to use it, which is very different to traditional grocery retail. And that message resonates with our customers more and more too. Would love to double click on that a bit more and understand other types of sustainability initiatives. You mentioned offsetting emissions in the supply chain. I imagine that might be a focus as well in terms of having D2C models and what transportation is involved in that. And then other ways that you guys are thinking about sustainability and working with the supply chain. So the main focus area we have in terms of improving our sustainability at the moment is reducing carbon in our supply chain has been working more closely with suppliers to minimise waste and to make sure that we're efficient in the ingredients. We source, we improve our forecast accuracy for that. Even just reducing the amount of packaging that we have around our ingredients has been a big improvement area for us over the last many years. In terms of packaging, how how has that journey played out in terms of the supply chain, it's often very complex and in terms of the volumes that you're dealing with, how have you been able to shift and reduce the packaging that's shipped out to customers? So we're able to reduce packaging, first of all, because we get our ingredients just in time. So the amount of packaging required is typically lower because they're not required to have as long a shelf life sitting in a distribution centre and then on a shelf before they're bought. That's first. Secondly, we're able to skip a lot of the secondary packaging that you see in the supply chain typically. So stuff that comes straight from our suppliers to us, arrives in crates and then returns in crates. So there's none of those boxes that put products on shelf which consumers then pick from. And unlike a lot of supermarket bought items as well, which have a lot more packaging to be presentable at the point of sale, we know that we're able to get these direct to the customer and they've got a job to do, which is to carry food alone. And that helps us reduce the packaging there. In terms of our tertiary packaging, we've been able to optimise our pallets when we ship across the country, reduce our box size based on constant optimization of volume we need for the product we have and make sure that we're getting more boxes in trucks and on pallets. And you mentioned that your supply chain looks pretty different to standard supermarket retail supply chains. Can you walk us through what that looks like? How does the produce get from farm to the customer door? If you think about a traditional supermarket model, They compete on their distribution, their range and their assortment. 
what we have is a supply chain that's driven by recipes and ingredients. We schedule those recipes. We know several weeks in advance what those recipes are going to be and work with our suppliers accordingly. With our forecast model closer to the time we're able to commit to quantities, we're essentially committing to carrots after our customers have committed to us. So we know, and I keep using the example of carrots, but it could be anything. It could be chicken thighs, right? We essentially know who's getting that particular thigh on that particular day and we're able to therefore have that arrive at our warehouse just in time, get packed into the right bag, get packed into the right box and then onto the right pallet and back out. It's quite amazing the manufacturing operation that we do have in our warehouses. We have more or less empty sheds at the end of every day and we just receive those items as we need them from our supplier and we're able to, with a very small footprint relatively in Australia, 29,000 square metres or so, ship hundreds and hundreds of thousands of boxes every month to our customers across the country. You mentioned in terms of your sustainability focus, definitely the food waste angle and being able to match supply and demand is a big lever and then that the company has worked on reducing packaging at various points in the supply chain. How do you think about kind of opportunities related to transport? Is that something that has been a focus in terms of kind of the fossil fuel intensity of transportation and what the future of that might look like? Is that an area you guys are keeping an eye out on? It's something that we're watching. There's a few things in transport that that can certainly be improved. And one of them is just not carting around ingredients that aren't going to get used or are going to end up in a retailer's bin or an end customer's bin. There's certainly a huge amount of fossil fuels that get generated, carting around stuff that essentially then goes back into the ground, not to mention the packaging that's been produced for those items also. the, The movement of heavy goods is always going to be a challenge. In terms of hauling stuff around cities, the last mile delivery certainly there are opportunities there and that's something we're watching at the moment the best thing we can do is improve the efficiency of our routes so we have our own courier business and we deliver our boxes essentially like a milk run going around one drop after the next but we optimize that for the time and in turn as a consequence fuel efficiency and we see that as we're able to drive up our route density then that's definitely driving improvement there too. It seems almost that there is a tension on one side in terms of having just in time and super lean supply chains to maximize that efficiency. And then some of the lessons we learned out of COVID in terms of the potential for supply chain disruptions and noting that we're only going to see more and more of that kind of disruption. And then in terms of having those localized catastrophic events, how is the business thinking about building resilience while maintaining the lean and efficient operations? So first of all, I think a lot of those supply chain challenges you talk about don't relate to fresh food necessarily. And with fresh food, there's not the luxury of being able to build up inventory and then sell it down. That's not a decision you can take and then plan your business that way. All produce, the best produce does work more or less on a just-in-time or a very short supply chain anyway. But certainly need to have that resiliency ingrained with a group of suppliers that are exposed to different geographies and different risks and also a network in your production and distribution that can shift the ability to receive goods and produce goods to different locations depending on weather and other events that will pose challenges in the future. And that's certainly something that we think about as we look at our DC strategy going ahead. We covered a ton of ground today, from the bird's eye view of waste in Australia to the more granular scale of how one company thinks about waste. 
And to me, these conversations were valuable in how they highlighted the differences in ways of thinking about waste. First, I think the most pronounced distinction between the way Gail and Tom think about waste is in terms of priority. When Komal pressed Tom about sustainability and the focus on waste reduction at HelloFresh, he, very rationally, highlighted what the company does to reduce its most costly waste stream, unused meal ingredients. I think from Gail's perspective, though, the bigger waste concern when it comes to home meal kit delivery isn't the food waste, but the packaging waste, if only because all the packaging will be thrown away. This, to me, is one of the stickiest problems when it comes to the psychology of waste in the food system, that at the end of the day, packaging waste is largely unavoidable. I know there's actually a lot of room for innovation that can enable reduction and avoidance in food packaging, but I think Tom's comments here illustrate that to be compelling in this very B2B market, those solutions will, at least for now, need to be cost-competitive drop-in alternatives. I also really appreciated Gail's points about manufacturer responsibility and the need to demonstrate claims. The idea of requiring companies to maintain some responsibility for the packaging they create or use would surely be a powerful market-moving mechanism and would go a long way towards eliminating some of the greenwashing we see in the food system, especially around, for example, packaging that is technically recyclable, but rarely or never actually recycled. I'm not sure what it would take to get this kind of policy over the finish line in Australia or elsewhere, but I do think it's one of a short list of actions that could alter incentives, even for packaging in meal kit delivery and similar services. Finally, I really like what Gail highlighted in terms of circularity. Creating circularity in systems isn't achieved by collecting all the waste and dumping it into a recycling system, or by eliminating all the plastic. Circularity is about creating more incentives for products to be reused again and again before they get to a state where the only option remaining is recycling. In other words, heavy emphasis on the reduce and reuse and maybe less focus on recycle. I think some of what Tom discussed shows his business is prioritizing reduction and reuse, but it sounded like many of those efforts were significant as compared to grocery. And to me, this comparison seems perhaps a bit disingenuous. I'd want to see more data on how much packaging a meal kit delivery service avoids versus grocers and how much additional packaging they created delivering boxes with ice packs and packaged ingredients to all their customers' doors. But for now, that's it for another episode of AgTech So What. A huge thanks to Gail Sloan of the Waste Management and Resource Recovery Association of Australia, Tom Rutledge of HelloFresh, and Komal Patel for bringing this episode to life. And of course, thank you for listening. For more information on any of the resources mentioned in this podcast, please visit tenacious.ventures. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.